seen Chandler grow over, the, over these last 16 and a half years uh, has been a great joy and source of encouragement for me. From the first time he said, Mommy, to all the hugs and the kisses and the I love yous through the years, even to, <laughs> even through the hard times and the challenging times and the times when things didn't always go well and uh, through the conflicts, um, there still was great joy as I saw through the years his heart just developing and how he has become, has, how he has such a soft, changeable heart and how he has a, unconditional love towards me. So as I'm trying to show him God, he is showing me God through the love that he has for me and in our relationship. But the greatest joy uh, that I've been able to and been blessed to experience uh, this year has been as I've seen my son study the Bible, how I've seen him grow in his love for God, grow in his deep convictions, and then to see him baptized on March 10th of this year. That is truly the greatest joy. Um, you know, children, as I said, are a gift from God. They're God's re reward. And I am truly grateful to be a mom. I'm truly grateful that God has blessed me in this way. And um, I'm truly grateful for my son. Thank you. So about 20 years ago, I was uh, a young single intern in the uh, ministry in Boston. And uh, right after I was hired, I was assigned to learn from and assist an elder couple who had decades of ministry leadership experience. That couple was uh, Gordon and Teresa Ferguson. And uh, here we are, a couple decades after that time, Gordon is still a warrior. He's already taught us a couple of times over the last month, and uh, the times he's taught, I felt, were both deep and inspiring. Um, Gordon is both a teacher. this one. There are a lot of sermons and classes and seminars and workshops and books that have Gordon's name on it. Gordon is a teacher of teachers, and he's an elder of elders, and uh, I'm very honored also to uh, be a friend to Gordon and Teresa. So uh, I want to welcome them uh, again this morning. He's going to be speaking to us right after we have this final song. Go ahead and stand on up. We'll sing it together. Anchor for the soul. 
Like manna in the morning, blessings overflowing, leading us to home. Amen. Please welcome Gordon. Hey, man, I, I love that song. I, lo I love our song selection today, actually. It's been very good. I, I appreciate all the songs that uh, some of our guys have written that have uh, nice melodies to them, but especially words that get to the heart. You know, I'm a guy that gets bored easily, so I like a lot of change. Uh, probably explains why I'm a gypsy and have lived all over the country and traveled all over the world. But at any rate, I like a lot of change. And the good thing about our church is that we've got so much going on, you don't get in a rut. It's always something new happening. Busy weekend, teen prom, Mother's Day, uh, a lot of other things about to happen. We've got a group from the West Region in Phoenix with us today, my buddy Alan Mitchell and teens from uh, the West Region in Phoenix. Amen. And that is where we were before we moved to California six months ago. So it's uh, good to see this group here today and all of you. This is uh, the third sermon on the theme of faith. And so we talked about the definition of faith in the first lesson, try to get a good biblical in-depth explanation. And then we talked secondly about how to build faith, how to increase faith. And today is really just a lesson, hopefully to inspire faith, especially in the times that it's tough, especially when we feel like we are in an extreme circumstance and need help. And so we've just entitled it, Man's Extremity is God's Opportunity. And that's really the truth. Okay, have you ever been pushed to the edge and thought, this is it? Uh, I've reached the limit, I'm falling off the edge of the earth, uh, it's all out of control, there's nothing I can do. Well, obviously, you'd have to say yes, right? The real question is, how many times have we been on that edge thinking this time we are off of it, we are cooked, we are done? Uh, probably a number of times, and you'll have some more times like that in your life. Why does God allow us to reach those places? You know, he could stop it, right? That's the real challenge is once we know enough theology to realize that God is ultimately in control of everything, that's when we start asking questions, why? Why does God allow it to happen? Well, obviously, he doesn't want to crush us, right? God wants to lead us farther and farther on the path of faith that leads to him ultimately and get us to learn how to really not simply believe his facts. We talked about that in the definition of faith. Believe facts, trust promises, obey commands, the hardest part is not believing facts. The hardest part, honestly, is not obeying commands. The hardest part is trusting promises, especially at the times that things are tough. Now, I want to introduce you to a king in the Old Testament today who demonstrates the principle about as well as anyone else in the Bible, a king who was overwhelmed 
He found the faith to trust in God and to lead his people to God when it seemed absolutely hopeless, like life seems to get with us. He's Jehoshaphat, jumping Jehoshaphat. I don't know where that phrase came from, but uh, it helps you remember who he was. He was a king, the fourth king in the divided kingdom time after Solomon when the kingdom divided. He was the fourth king of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the kingdom that stayed most faithful to God. They had their problems, but they were a lot better than the northern king uh, kingdom that went totally into idolatry. He started reigning at age 35 and reigned for 25 years, and basically he was a good king. Uh, he did have a few alliances with the northern kingdom that he shouldn't have had that led to some problems, but he was still basically among the kings, uh, a fairly good king. But in 2 Chronicles 20, and I'll tell you more about how this passage got on my heart later in the lesson, but in this passage, without question, he had his finest hour with God and as a leader uh, as they went through one of the biggest challenges he would ever face. And so he left us some lessons that will help us, I think. A lot. His story provides us with one of life's biggest lessons that we all need to get. It is not what happens to us that determines who we are, but rather it is how we respond to what happens. A lot of people think, well, I'm just shaped by my circumstances. No, you're not. You are shaped by your response to those circumstances. And that's one of the lessons that we all need because we are so into being victims. We live in a world of a victim mentality. It's all about my circumstance. I can't help the way I am. Oh, yes, you can. It's not what happens to you. It's how you respond that makes all the difference. It makes the difference in who you are and are not. Another huge lesson in my mind is related to it. We'll get to this one toward the end of the lesson. But this lesson or principle says it is not our background that determines who we become, but rather our choices. Now they are related, but one has to do with where we came from and the other has to do with what we face at any given time. Response, choices, big things. Okay, let's delve into Second Chronicles. My first point of the lesson is looking at the first two verses of this passage. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can, but I put it up here just to make it easy for us. But life is stacked against us. Okay, it is. I don't know why it has to be this way. Well, I do. I'm going to tell you. Uh, I, I just sometimes wish it wasn't. But life really is somewhat stacked against us. It certainly was with Jehoshaphat. Chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Minuites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hezron Tamar, that is in Gedi. And nothing really, I mean, overwhelmed. Three nations coming against him. Overwhelmed. What will we do? What can we do? And the real question is, what can God do, of course? And he has to get there. 
But you know nothing's changed much in our day. The world still is stacked against us. But why is that so? 1 John 5.19 is the answer. We know that we are children of God. Praise Jesus for that. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Anytime I get a sermon, you know, that I'm going to preach, if it is one that can be challenged by Satan, it's going to be. I had a prayer time this week one day, I don't know, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday. And I don't think I asked God for hardly anything. I was just feeling so good about life. I was just thankful for this and thankful for that, and it was a beautiful, sunshiny day, and I was in a beautiful park where I pray, and it was just one of those good days. I didn't have much to complain about. Didn't have much to ask for that day. Well, later that day, my computer crashed. Now, when you're a guy like me and you write and do books and all that stuff and your computer crashes, that's serious business. Uh, that, that raises blood pressure fast. And that was about one of five things that descended on me that day. By the time I went to bed that day, I thought, what in tarnation happened to my day? It started off so good this morning. I didn't even have a problem list. And now I don't have any place to write it down, electronically at least. Uh, that's, that's the world we live in, guys. And uh, if you get ready to teach a lesson on something like this, you can count on having an interesting week. So, uh, you know, there are times like that. There are times when we reach our extremity. We don't know how to proceed. And yet that's what uh, jo jo uh, Jehoshaphat is going to teach us about. That was where he was as the leader of a nation. His whole nation's involved. It's not, it's not just him having a bad day. Uh, he's got an entire nation that's about to have a horrible day uh, as they have three nations coming against them. So, the real question is how did he respond, right? It's not what happens to you circumstantially, it's how you respond to it. And that's what he is going to have to answer. And you get to the point when God is the only answer. And so in verses 3 and following, let me read it. Alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire the Lord. Well, at least he knew where to start, right? Sometimes we don't start there. We just get there when nothing else works. But he knew how bad it was to start with. I mean, it's like finding out you have cancer. You, you know where to start, right? First off, you better start praying. Uh, thankful that my sister with the same last name uh, has her five-year time. I have a list, a prayer list. Well, a lot of things on it, but one thing I pray for every day is people with cancer. I've had a lot of it in my family. My father died with it. And so I have a list of five with active cancer that right now are fighting the battle. And uh, one brother that I studied with, uh, helped study with, he got baptized in Phoenix. He's getting toward the end of his time. Uh, but he's ready. I call him occasionally. He's, he's ready to go and meet God. I just pray his family that's left behind will be. That's my bigger concern, honestly. But anyway, five active ones. And then I've got a long list of ones that have, you know, gotten past the point so that they are cancer survivors now. 
and the top of the list actually is uh, Gloria Baird and Deb Eskew because they most recently got the good report. And so they're at the top of the list. But I have a number of people with all kinds of cancer that I pray for. And uh, so when things happen that are really, really, really challenging from the beginning, then you know we better go to God. So he proclaimed a fast after he inquired of God for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new uh, court, courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out all the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built it a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now... Even after all the other stuff he said that was reassuring and encouraging. But we're in a mess now. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came in from Egypt, by the way. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Now note the steps that they took in going to God. First, they went to God for answers as a first resort, not a last one. Sometimes we try everything else because we tend to be humanistic, right? And then finally, when nothing else works, we go to God. But they started off going to God for answers because the problem was so severe. When the problems are severe, we start there. When they don't seem so severe, we don't start there. But finally, they get severe as a result of not doing it, and we end up there, right? They showed their desperation by fasting. Uh, what price are we willing to pay to find help from God? They were willing to go on a fast as a nation. The people all came together to seek God together. We too often try to go it alone, guys. We don't share with others what we're facing and what we're feeling. Uh, got with someone yesterday. I got with a brother for a discipling time. My wife got with... Uh, his wife for discipling time separately. My wife came back and said, Honey, did he tell you about so-and-so? And I said, No. What's going on? And she told me the story. So I've got to have a chat with him because honestly, he needed to unburden himself with that one. It was a pretty heavy one. I was surprised he didn't talk with me. Generally, he's pretty open about stuff. But anyway, we, we're like that. I can be like that. Uh, I can want to do it myself. You know, guys are made in such a way we want to find the answer and then tell you about it. 
We want to work through the problem and then tell you what the wonderful solution was that we discovered. We need to get open from the beginning and get help before we end up in more trouble than we started with. The king led the people in prayer, and the prayer progression is important, but it's interesting. It began with recounting God's power is shown in their history. That's a good thing, to look back in the past and realize God has really blessed us. He's gotten us through a lot of other struggles that should give us hope for the present one. It proceeded with reminding God of the promises to bless them when they did rely on Him according to His directions. And so they reminded God, here is what you said, God. Here is what you promised. So they looked at what God had done in the past. They looked at what God promised to do in the future. But in the end, they laid out the facts of their present situation and saying they are at their extremity. There is nothing we can do. That's a good place to get. It's a hard place to reach. It's a scary place to be. But honestly, when God's in the equation, it's a wonderful place when you just get to the point, out of my hands. Uh, that's a good thing. Verses uh, 14 to 17. I thought there was something before that, no? Okay. Uh, then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Uh, Tamara marched down against them. They'll be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And so when they really humbled themselves and prayed, the prophet spoke. God gave an answer. God has an answer. He always has an answer if we really seek him. And in this case, the prophet said, here's the answer. God's going to fight the battle for you. Just line up, get out on the battlefield, and watch it happen. You don't have to lift a finger. You think that would have been hard to believe? I mean, this is a nation of warriors. This is a nation of many battles. And now he says, take your guys out. Take all the soldiers out there but they won't have to fight. God will take care of it. How in the world is that even going to happen? You know, if you have a big tornado, maybe that sucks them up and uh, takes them off to some other place. I, I don't know. What, what would you think would be the answer to that one? Kind of perplexing, huh? Basically, his directions was, were to go out but do nothing. And so the message meant that they didn't have to fight. But their fight at that point was still a fight. They had to fight for faith to believe. You know, you're going to fight one way or the other. There is always going to be a battle. God is trying to strengthen our spiritual muscles. There's going to be a battle. 
But in this case, it wasn't going to be the physical battle that probably they might have been more comfortable with. They were more used to it. They had a history of it. But he said, no, God will take care of it. You don't have to do anything. And they're on a battlefield with their spears. Interesting. Uh, but they fought for faith to believe. That's our, our challenge, to believe and trust in the promises that God has given us to get us through whatever challenges He allows to come our way. That's, uh, that's this battle we call life, right? Uh, the old saying, I've been up and I'll be down and I, I will be both again. That's true. You're going to have a lot of challenges in your life before you check out of it, unless you die today. Uh, you're going to have a lot of challenges. I, I just know I will. I know good and well when I have one of those days when it's just all nice. Everything is good. Can't think of any request much to make except for other people and, you know, whatever they're going through. But as far as me, I'm good, Lord. What a wonderful day. I know that will not last. Satan will not allow it to last because he doesn't want it to. And God will not allow it because he has a different purpose than Satan. Satan wants to destroy you with the challenges and God wants to strengthen you with those very same challenges. But they, they're going to come. You can mark that one down. So that's my battle, always. Rob Skinner is now the uh, new leader at the uh, Tucson Church. Just talked to a good friend that had really left God. But now he's going back. He loves what the Skinners are doing. Uh, he is uh, in the process of getting restored. He's an old friend and a very good friend. Uh, but he's done poorly spiritually for a good long while. And I'm just so grateful for Rob being there. But anyway, here's how this one happened. Rob did a lesson in Phoenix. I was off in Asia or Ukraine, I don't know. I, I was somewhere besides there. He preached his sermon... And my wife was telling me about it, but she chose a time when we were driving to the airport to fly to Los Angeles to talk to the leaders here about maybe moving here and, you know, doing the ministry training stuff and whatever else. This is one of the whatever else things uh, today. But uh, anyway, we're, we're going to the airport. And my wife told me about the sermon and about Rob sharing his life and saying, that it was a real challenge to pull up roots with teenagers and move because he said we're around our family up in the Northwest, uh, making good money finally, uh, everything's going well. He said, frankly, there are two things involved here. My comfort zone is hard to leave. Uh, that's one of the things. And then I'm in control of things the way I am. I'm going to jump in the middle where I'm out of control. And I, as my wife said that, it bugged me. I thought, she, I'm on the way to talk to these guys in Los Angeles. And I, I guess my heart really didn't want to come and do it. But it bothered me. You know, in responding to lessons, when something grabs you, that just means your heart got affected. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I heard this and it really disturbed me or whatever. I, I just said, bingo. 
I hit what I aim for. Amen. Uh, because then that gives you the opportunity to determine what you're going to do. Whether you're going to get mad at the messenger or whether you're going to look at your own heart and repent. I mean, I knew that day. I could either get ticked off at Rob. Why in the world did you preach that, Rob? Or at my wife. Why in the devil did you tell me that on the way to the airport? Or I could say, well, Gordon, you got a problem, don't you? And thankfully, that's the way I usually respond when something bugs me in a lesson that I hear. If it bugs me, I know it got really close to home. And so I said, okay, uh, I got to work on this. I got a problem here. Uh, I don't want to lose control. I had control. I have teaching ministry. I could go and come as I please, and no one, no one gave me really any direction about it. Not that I didn't ask for advice, but there was no one responsible to give me direction. It was my ministry. And uh, so that was control and in comfort zone. We'd lived in a house for nine years. I've never in my entire life lived in a house for nine years, ever, even as a kid. Certainly not in the ministry, not even close to nine years. It was nice and comfortable. It was a nice house. It had a swimming pool. It was in a very quiet neighborhood. It was close to everything good. Uh, malls, Walmart. <laughs> I like Walmart. Inherited, inherited that from my dad, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, when things disturb us, we need to ask why. And we can either get mad at the messenger or we can take a look at our hearts. And I knew better than to get mad at the messenger. It, if it bothered me, why did it bother me? That's a real question. Why did it bother me? Well, because there was something that I did not want to deal with. Well, obviously, I have dealt with it. Uh, I love the definition of a, a real disciple as being someone who will go anywhere, do anything, give up everything. I've really tried to live by that principle since I got in this movement of churches in San Diego in 1985. I have moved all over, done all kinds of stuff. I've tried to live by that. But I'm telling you what, it's a lot easier to preach about it than actually to do it. Uh, maybe that's why I keep preaching about it, because I'm preaching at me, that I've got to stay there. No matter the age, the circumstances, anything else, I've got to stay right there. So the decision to move to Los Angeles definitely brought on the challenges to me and Teresa to leave our grandchildren there, to move to a new place, to start a new thing at age 70. That, you know, it had its challenges, but nothing like the guys in the Bible had. Hey, I'd swap it any day for where Jehoshaphat was, right? You, you wouldn't want to be him or in his country uh, at the time that we're talking about biblically here. But it was a challenge to get through all of that. But I knew the battle, uh, you know, was really a spiritual issue, and I just had to do the battle. And so Teresa and I are the kind that basically we've determined we're going to do what we believe God wants us to do, whether it's easy or hard. It's not, we're going to, I got a lot of emotions. I'm an emotionally based guy, but my mind is going to win over my emotions. I've lived by that for a long time. I've made some decisions that were emotionally hard to make, but if I thought they were right intellectually, we did it. Uh, I had no doubt that it was right to move to Los Angeles. And so we made the decision. And so our emotions got in line. We love being in California now, but uh, the decision part was hard. 
Faith is really the victory that overcomes the world, the last part. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Then some of the Levites from the Kohathites and Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. They worshiped the Lord, determined to trust his promises to deliver them. The next morning, they picked right up where they left off. Sometimes, uh, you know, the passing of time dims our faith and makes us fearful again but it did not them, bless their hearts. Beginning in verse 22, God's strange answer is set in motion. And I'm telling you, this is a strange story. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Here's how it happened. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they killed all of them, they helped to destroy one another. They turned on each other. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Now that is a huge lesson because we all have our expectations about how God should answer something and that keeps us from believing and looking for with anticipation and trust to the answer that he actually will bring. You know, God uh, loves to get us to a place where we have to walk by faith, where we can't figure it out. We, we, we pride ourselves in figuring all out, well, this will happen next, and this will happen next, and this will happen next. We love to sequence it out. Maybe it happened that way one time. Good. Probably won't the next time. God is unpredictable. I know he's neither man nor woman, but he is unpredictable. So he's got all the qualities of men and women, and here I am in trouble with the women. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, but the unpredictable part, actually, I like. My wife's totally unpredictable. She's kept me mesmerized for 48 years of marriage. So anyway, it's a good quality. So uh, God is going to answer us in a way that we don't expect, and we've got to get to the point that we just say with God, okay, God, whatever. Now, that, that's a good answer. It's not good if you're a teen answering your parents that way. Ah, whatever. You know, that, that's not good. Don't do that, teens. Parents don't like to hear that. They don't want to see the eye roll, well, whatever. No, but saying whatever to God is good. Okay, God, you're in charge. Whatever will be fine with me. My experience last year when this passage jumped out at me, I was going through a challenging time. It involved some close relationships with people I love dearly. And this adopted spiritual daughter of mine, wrote her about, about her in a book. Anyway, she's a very spiritual young woman, always sending me passages and ideas and stuff. She sent me this passage and made some comments about it in an email, and I didn't even hardly look at it. But I was doing the one-year Bible reading, and I came back across it within another couple weeks. 
And I read it at that time, and it grabbed me. And so I thought, okay, I didn't listen to her, but then it's in my reading. I, I better go back and read her email and see what she said. And reread that passage. And one day, I'd reached that extremity. I did not know what to do, and it was really an important situation. And so I basically said, God, I'm done. I'm where Jehoshaphat was. I have no clue what to do. I've done everything I know to do. Nothing has worked. And this was a big deal to me. So uh, somebody asked me to go play golf, and we left Phoenix and went up in the mountains where the cell phone didn't work. I tried it a little bit, but it didn't work. So I just turned it off and played the golf. It was a very pretty course. We had lunch and then played golf and took a long time. So about 5 in the afternoon, I'm driving back down. I'd parked my car at a casino down at the bottom. Not that I go into those, but anyway, I parked my car in their big parking lot. And the brother I was playing golf with dropped me off. And so when I got back in the car, before I even left, I clicked the phone back on, and man, that thing lit up. I had a bunch of telephone messages. And I started listening to the messages and just being totally amazed. God solved every problem while I was off playing golf. <laughs> and I couldn't do a thing. I couldn't get on the cell phone. I couldn't push anybody's buttons or my own. I just said, okay, God, 2 Chronicles 20, I'm done with it. Whatever you do, if it doesn't straighten out, then just help me to somehow endure it because it's a heavy one. But I can't do a thing. I'm Jehoshaphat, and I'm going to go off and play golf and pray. <laughs> and I got down and got on that phone, and I'm telling you, I was shocked out of my mind at all the messages and the follow-up that took place before I got home. Everything got solved of a very complex situation. And so that's about what happened to them, right? And so it ends up, so Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Becherah, where they praised the Lord. That is why it is called the valley of Berechah, to this day. Now, they uh, were led by Jehoshaphat. They came back. They praised God. They went to the temple. The fear of God fell on everyone around them. And it says at the end, the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. God did his thing. He just did it in a way you would never expect. I often think of God. He, he loves to jump out from behind bushes and scare me. Uh, I, that's just how I picture him. I mean, really. I, I'm going along and all of a sudden, good night. How did that happen? I, that's just the way God seems to work in my life. In the least expected times, in the least expected ways, he just does stuff. Uh, maybe it's because, you know, I can't pay attention long. I'm, I got ADD or DDT or something. I, I know Ray... Raised in the cotton fields of Louisiana or around them, there's plenty of DDT sprayed on all that stuff. So we've, we've all got residual DDT in us, especially southern boys like me. Uh, anyway, you can't predict God, but he makes things happen. 
After it was all over, he gave them far more than they asked for. All they wanted to do is stay alive, right? If God had said, okay, here's a contract, sign this contract, and no one will die. Man, <laughs> But he didn't just keep them alive. He gave them so much stuff, it was unbelievable. God will always reward faith phenomenally. And at the same time, they praised God. They had appreciation. They weren't like the, the, uh, the lepers that didn't return after Jesus healed them many years later. The first thing they did was come back and assemble and praise God for what he had done. Finally, they just had peace that transcends all understanding. Well, that's a, a great lesson to me, but it is Mother's Day, you know. You thought I was going to preach on Mother's Day. Uh, well, let me throw a few Mother's Day comments out here. You know, the second principle, I'm almost done. You, ha you have ADD and DDT too, I know. Uh, you remember the second principle that I promised to address. It is not our background that determines who we become, but only our choices. Remember that one? Now, if anything proves it, the women that Jesus mentioned, the five mothers that he mentioned in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus are the perfect ones to address that principle. It's not our background that determines who we become, but only our choices. Out of the genealogy, it's mostly guys, but Jesus mentioned five mothers, five women, and look who they are. Now, there were a lot of women in the Old Testament that would be heroes to us, right? The ones that he mentioned, look at this. Tamer. Well, who is that? Well, it's the uh, woman that posed as a harlot and had a baby in Jesus' lineage by her own father-in-law, Judah, the great one who uh, fathered all the kids that made up the tribes of Judah, I mean the tribes of Israel, uh, slept with her own father-in-law. Well, I know he didn't do his part in the story. If you go back and read it, Genesis 37, I think it is, but even if he didn't do his part, I mean, what's this? She dresses up like a harlot and has a baby with her father-in-law. That'd make the papers. <laughs> but she's in the lineage of Jesus, and she's mentioned. Rahab, the harlot. Now, because she was a hero and, and saved the nation, uh, later Jews and others have tried to say, no, that means innkeeper. I don't think so. I don't think the term means it. And the fact that the guys could just go in and out of her house, if she's a hooker, it makes it a lot easier because everyone can say, yeah, she's got guys going in and out all the time there. That, that didn't pick up any attention. And she lived on the wall of the city, so somebody, if their wife came, they could go down the side of the wall, right? <laughs> there are external things that would make you say, besides the Hebrew term, she was a hooker. She was a good woman as it turned out, and God blessed her and put her name in the Bible uh, a number of times. And then Ruth, Moabite, where'd they come from? Came from a drunken guy, the nephew of, of uh, Abraham, Lot. He was so drunk he didn't even know what he was doing, and he had sex with his two daughters because they were afraid they wouldn't have any babies and any offspring. And so that's how Moab got started. 
and they were a thorn in the Israelite side from there on. They were the ones that seduced Israel to commit immorality and idolatry in Numbers chapter 25, and Ophinius stabbed a couple of them uh, in the middle of their sexual time. That's a good story, Numbers 25, you can read that. Uh, but at any rate, here's Ruth, a Moabitess. She's not even an Israelite, and she is in the lineage of Christ and mentioned in it. Wow. And then Uriah's wife, it says, of course, we know that to be Bathsheba. Well, you know, I mean, what could she do? He was the king. Well, why don't you go ask Esther and Esther's predecessor what you can do when a king wants to do wrong. You can say no. She didn't say no. So here's Bathsheba in the lineage of Christ, and then you got Mary, and she's the one that uh, lived all of her life being accused of having a baby out of wedlock. Because most people didn't believe her. I mean, all, all the way to the end of her life, there's stories about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never had sex. Yeah, 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 yeah. Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were so many jokes about her. She had to endure a lot of stuff. You look at those women. It is not their background that determined who they became. It was their choices. And so the principles for you to take home today from Jehoshaphat, it is not what happens to us that determines who we are, but only how we respond to what happens. And from the gals in Matthew 1, it is not our background that determines who we become, but only our choices. Happy Mother's Day. Okay, well at this time we're going to take communion, uh, so I'll say a prayer for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for just this morning where we could honor our mothers. And uh, there's such a blessing in our lives, and thank you so much, Lord, that uh, you give us opportunities to demonstrate and really rely on our faith. And Father, this is all possible uh, because we have Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, as we reflect on him this morning and as we take communion, I just pray that uh, we would have a deep sense of gratitude and reflect on all the things that you've blessed us with, Lord, and everything that you've allowed us to go through and are uh, with us as we're going through now, Lord. Uh, we just pray that uh, we would have that deep sense of gratitude. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus and uh, his sacrifice on the cross. We love you so much, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.